so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Schreiner to talk about his new book, Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World from BH Publishing. Dr. Schreiner is an associate professor of New Testament and biblical theology, as well as the director of the residency PhD program at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He previously taught at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and received his PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also the author of a number of books, including a recent commentary on the Book of Acts, The Visual Word, an Illustrated Guide of the New Testament Books, as well as The Mission of the Triune God, A Theology of Acts. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. I'm really excited for this conversation, specifically to talk about your new book, Political Gospel. Uh, This is a book that when I saw it a while back, I was just really intrigued, not only because it's beautifully done in terms of the art, but also it's an, an incredibly important topic. It's kind of one of those topics you're not supposed to talk about around the dinner table at Thanksgiving or holidays coming up um, because it's it's talking about the nature of religion and faith as well as in terms of politics, which can be some of the more divisive topics in our society today, especially given kind of our current cultural moment. Um, but before we kind of dive into the book itself, I want to help listeners get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what prompted you to write a book like this? Yeah, so I'm a New Testament scholar. I teach the New Testament at a seminary. And I think what's unique about this book is I view it from kind of the scripture. And so I look at politics from the scriptures. And that came from my background in terms of I wanted to go into ministry. I am in ministry, but I really loved really studying the scriptures. And so from kind of my first seminary classes, when I thought I was going into kind of full-time pastoral ministry, What really grabbed me was just understanding this text that is before us, that has a different language and a different culture, but that God has communicated to us through this text. And so while this book does address a contemporary issue, it still kind of hones in on what I love to do, which is help people understand how the Bible continues to speak to us today. And I was just so convinced that, you know, that is 
true for politics as well. And so I saw kind of broadly what's going on in the American church in terms of politics. And then also kind of my background in reading the scriptures. And I thought maybe I can do something here and combine those two. Well, I think in many ways you accomplished that goal. That's something I really took away from reading the book is it's saturated in scripture. Um, as you're kind of walking through these big narratives, you're walking through these big concepts and themes. And we'll get to that here in a little bit in the interview. But one of the things I wanted to start off with, and you kind of have mentioned this already, um, is that this book isn't really a, a manual for political engagement for Christians, nor is it really kind of an ethical guide for a lot of political policies or concepts or ideas or programs, nor is it really a book about third wayism that's been really popular amongst many Christians for a while about kind of how do we not be on the left or the right, but kind of this third way kind of navigating things. So I wanted to see what are some of the big kind of picture goals that you have for people reading this book, not just in terms of takeaways, but how this differs from maybe other books on politics that you've seen or you've engaged with on the market. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. I I think some might be disappointed when they pick it up because of these reasons, because they want answers for like, how do I vote on this issue? What do I think about immigration or abortion or the national debt or whatever it is? And I really don't go into those issues because what I wanted to do was build a foundation from the scriptures. I'm actually concerned that Often when we begin to talk about politics, we begin with the issues and we're either (laughs) therefore pegged as right or left on a certain issue. And I feel like people usually turn off like wherever they're tuned towards, they then turn off that person. And so I actually didn't, I didn't want to approach the book from that angle. I also think our political system shifts so rapidly that would make the book pretty much like a timepiece. Like it, it fits this time and not another time. So I really wanted to back up and say, does the scripture give us the posture, the way in which to engage in politics today? And to do that, I had to kind of break down some common ideas of the difference between religion and politics. And so the argument that I make in the book is that Christianity is political. And by political, I don't mean partisan. I mean, it has a lot to say in terms of how we engage with politics more generally because it is itself a politic. And so I, I had to kind of break down some of those, I, what I would call kind of false dichotomies between religion and politics just to begin with. Because, you know, as I look at the American church, it seems like either we completely combine Christianity with our political views or we completely separate them. And maybe there is kind of, maybe there is some third wayism in my book, but I did want to kind of chart a middle ground there and say, no, neither of those are probably a helpful way of engaging with this. Rather, we can go to the scriptures and understand our faith at its core is political. I know I need to define what that means, but it's at its core, it's political. And if it is, then the rest of the book is really exploring what are we to do in light of that? What are the actions that we are to perform in light of that? And so I said at the beginning, I wrote this as an American Protestant white Westerner, right? Like it's definitely aimed towards the American church. But I I, kind of throughout the book, I was hoping that these concepts would be applicable to anyone (laughs) who is engaging in any political system. And so I, it is focused on where we are now, but at the same time, because I I tried to apply it some to our situation, but at the same time, I do hope that it can kind of transcend this temporal moment and just give a foundation from which we can think politically. Again, that's not, I'm not talking about ethics right now, although it has ethical implications, 
I'm not talking necessarily even about how we vote, although it has implications. I'm more talking the foundation level. How do we engage with governing authorities? And we, we usually run to like two texts for that, but uh, I think we need to go really to the whole Bible. So, Yeah, and that's something we'll definitely unpack. It, it kind of reminds me as you're talking, it reminds me of uh, John Murray's book a long time ago called Principles of Conduct. And he talks about it's called uh, Aspects of the Biblical Ethics. And then on the first page, he's talking about how we have, it's not multiple biblical ethics or a biblical ethic, it's the biblical ethic. And that was one of the goals that he tried to do in that book was to kind of get back to the foundations of biblical ethics, um, of the biblical ethic, because in the mind of God, there aren't multiple ethics. There aren't multiple ways to interpret it. So getting back to the text, that's something I really appreciate about the way you've approached these things. And you've already mentioned this, but you say that you write that Christianity is political, but the average Christian is not political enough. And I think that may strike some people a little kind of, they're like, what? Because most of the Christians I know seem to be very, very politically involved and for many good reasons. Um, where sometimes things may seem too politically charged at time. But you frame a lot of that conversation in light of how the entire biblical storyline can be seen under the banner of politics proper. So I wanted you to dive in a little bit and say, what do you mean by politics and political? Help us define terms so that we can have a little clarity there, um, especially as we talk about how, how Christianity has political implications, but it itself is a politic, as you've written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when people hear me say Christianity is political, I think we in the American church think political and partisan are the same word. Uh, they're not the same word. So first of all, I don't mean that. Second of all, I argue I'm not saying we shouldn't have separation of church and state. I actually believe we should have separation of church and state. Now, um, that doesn't mean separation of religion from politics, but I don't think the state, especially in America, as we have set it up, should be advocating for one religious system, one church. And that's how we have set it up. And I think there's good, actually, biblical arguments for doing that. That's a question for probably somebody else. But so what do I mean by politics? I just mean public life, the ordering of society, the enacting of justice, the arranging of common good. So political means the activities associated with the organization and governance of a people. And so political just honestly means public. Christianity is a public reality. Christianity is not just a private reality. Therefore, it has, yes, it's a politic itself in terms of God has told us how to order our lives, both communally and individually. Now, he hasn't told us this is the political system you must have as a nation. <laughs> That's not what I'm arguing. I think Christianity is malleable and flexible enough to actually exist under many governing systems. You've seen that throughout church history, totalitarianism, communism, republic. It can exist under all of these systems. But at the same time, politics, in terms of what Christianity is, it's a public reality, and therefore God has told us how to order ourselves. And so when I say most Christians aren't nearly political enough, I'm kind of hinting at or getting at there's a sense in which Christians have privatized our faith. And that goes alongside with partisanship in a weird way, because when we privatize it, sometimes we just say it's wholly this party or this other thing, if that makes sense. But when we privatize our faith, we don't recognize Jesus didn't come just to reform our hearts, but really to bring in a new kingdom. And so we'll, we'll probably get into this as we go on, but Jesus's declaration of kingship and of the kingdom and of a new era 
is a fully political message. And that's how it was interpreted. Although there was some confusion, that's how it was interpreted in Jesus's time. And so another way to say it is, you know, we have a division between religion and politics in our time, but that just division didn't exist in Jesus's day. And you can see that even in the Old Testament. Um, when one nation won, their God won. <laughs> and so the, the political reality of a nation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament kind of seamlessly fit with the religion of the time. So the political and religious aspect fit together. And I think if we can kind of get out of our modern era and read the scriptures, understanding that that division didn't exist, that'll pay dividends in terms of how we interact politically. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you bring out in terms of the privatization of faith. Uh, that happens not just in the kind of the quote secular square, and I'm using air quotes to say, obviously the word secular is pretty loaded. It can mean very uh, different things to many different people. But one of the things I've noticed, especially in a lot of kind of public theology and even public and kind of uh, political ethics and things like that, is that there often is a tendency within our larger culture to say your faith is merely a private matter. It's a freedom of worship rather than a religious freedom um, of something that can come into the public square and shape the public conversation and even help us to pursue common goods as a society. And that's something I think you do really well, kind of going back into the scriptures. But one thing you tucked into a footnote, um, and as an academic and kind of a nerd, maybe those two things are synonymous. I always love when I find a good footnote. And we're able to dig into it a little bit. But you write that many political theory as well as theology books often have little to say about how early Christians interacted with the Roman Empire. We often focus on the scriptures themselves rightfully. And we also kind of talk about that and apply those directly into our contemporary context, kind of passing over how many of our ancestors um, and faithful members of the church interacted with the Roman Empire. And there's obviously many facets and sides to that as well. And you show that there's this uh, chasm that often separates historical studies from political theology in various particular fields. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Help us to understand maybe how the, the role model of early Christians in the Roman Empire, and even after the conversion of Constantine and kind of how the, the table shifted a little bit, how that can help to inform and shape how we engage in politics today. Yeah, so when, when you come to the scriptures, one of the hardest things to do is to jump into that time and that culture and that place. And so what we're always trying to do is understand what were these people thinking, doing, how did their culture work? Because our culture is so different from that time. And there's another hurdle that actually it makes it even harder in that we have a tendency, even for those who have studied the scriptures, to just quickly run to the Jewish background. So the Old Testament is the main background we think of for the New Testament. I actually think that's right, and that's how we should begin reading the scriptures. But as you study the New Testament text, what you find is, well, the Greek and Roman culture had really taken over at that point. It's called Hellenization. And so the reason we have a Greek New Testament rather than a Hebrew New Testament is because that was the language of the time. And so when we read the scriptures, we often think about, oh, again, this is mainly a religious message. Jesus came here to, you know, he, he came with a sort of revolution, but not the revolution that we typically think of. But as you begin to recognize, oh, Jesus lived under the boots of Rome, you know, like there were statues of Caesar that he would walk by. He walked on Roman robes. Same with Paul. And they interacted with Roman coins, right? With um, the bust of a Caesar on it that declared he was a son of God. And so all of these things 
as I began to honestly study the New Testament more, I realized we forget that Jesus and Paul and the church and Peter and the rest of the New Testament authors existed under a political system. So when we, we, we search for, um, Rome or Caesar, you can find some hits and some references to Rome and to Caesar. Um, but you don't get a lot. And so you think, well, maybe, maybe the New Testament doesn't have a lot to say in terms of our political lives right now. But if you begin to realize that everything that Jesus said had Greek and Roman hearers listening to him and saying, how do I filter this out? And that Jesus himself existed under this political system. Then we start to realize, I think, oh, maybe the New Testament has more to say to us in terms of our public witness, in terms of how to engage with rulers who we might not like, who are corrupt, so forth and so on. Jesus lived under all those systems too, and so did Paul. And so their commands to us and their actions in the midst of that actually has a lot to teach us. And so really what I wanted to do was uh, awaken those who maybe have read the scriptures for a long time and have not recognized kind of the echoes to the Greco-Roman culture that they're kind of missing. So you're missing half of the conversation if you're not picking up on these echoes. And, you know, part of the reason we have missed these echoes is because even when you pick up a commentary, most of the time it's Jewish background. It's not Greco-Roman background, at least in this time right now, in, in terms of New Testament and Old Testament scholarship. And so I wanted to bring some of that kind of Roman Empire flavor <laughs> to this book. And there is work being done on it. And I kind of popularized a lot of it and just introduced people to, hey, when Jesus says kingdom or gospel or faith or believe or when Paul talks about the church, or when they talk about um, the sacraments, or Jesus's return, what sort of like notions would that have raised in their minds? And my argument throughout the book is, those are all actually very political terms. That would have been one of the categories. I use this image of a filing cabinet, though when I say a certain word, you, you file it accordingly into kind of a, this fits into this category. And one of my arguments throughout the book is all the terms that we think are religious terms are also political terms. And so just recognizing that helps you see and helped me see that, wow, the Bible has a lot more to say about our political engagement than we had realized. Jesus existed under Rome, and he had something to say about that. You know, even on, I sent out this little kind of voting ballot with the initial copies of the book. I don't know if you saw that, but one of the questions that we came up with was Jesus crucified as a religious figure or a political figure? Yes or no? <laughs> and that's a pretty revealing question. It's obviously a difficult question to answer, but it's a revealing question because, yeah, wait, what, why was Jesus crucified? How, how did they view him in that time? And there, you're actually engaging again in that it was there even a division between those two. I think you can't answer that yes or no because the two actually come together. But we typically think, oh yeah, he was crucified as a religious figure. But it's just so much more complex and interesting than that. So yeah, I really wanted to press into that kind of Greek and Roman background to let people know the scriptures have something to say to our current moment. Yeah. I think that's one of the strengths of the book, not only as you dig into those Greek and kind of Roman backgrounds, but also just digging into the scriptures themselves. As I've noticed in terms of ethics, um, as an ethicist, many times when you pick up a book on ethics, you're wondering at times like, have 
where are you going to the scripture? It seems like we're kind of proof texting. It seems like we're taking kind of a general principle or concept and finding a few texts to ground it rather than kind of starting with the scriptures. And I think that's refreshing. As you said earlier on, uh, that might disappoint some people who wanted a little bit of a different book. Uh, but that's something that I appreciate about this book. And so I wanted to ask you, what are some of those biblical categories or framing devices that we as readers, not just of your book, but really of the scriptures themselves, that we need to keep in mind as we talk about Christianity as a politic rather than just kind of isolated passages or some proof texting here and there and saying this is a Christian politic. What are some of those biblical categories or notions or framing devices that we should be kind of keeping in mind as we're filing these things as we're reading the scriptures? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'd say is we probably tend to run towards the specific commands or the specific texts. So you think about Mark 12, Jesus has asked a very political question, should I pay taxes to Caesar? And that looms large in my book. We need to deal with that, right? Uh, or you think about uh, Romans 13, Paul says, submit to governing authorities. Or you think of uh, 1 Peter 2. And Peter also says, you need to submit to governing authorities. So if you just line up the like specific texts where they're asked or they speak about a political question, <laughs> how do we deal with Rome here? Uh, very much so, all of them kind of line up like, hey, give taxes to Caesar, submit to them. And so our political theology ends up kind of being those texts and we stop. <laughs> and what I want to do in this book is say, you know, much of our Bible, and this is much of our New Testament, is a narrative as well, which means some of the messages that we get about politics might be tucked away into the words or the actions of a figure. And so I wanted us to expand, I mean, most of the political theology books I, I read had to do with political theory. I'm not a political theorist. They're, they're helpful. But like you said, they didn't deal a lot with the scriptures. I'm swimming in political theory and I'm like, wow, this is not my field. But what I wanted to do was show people, hey, when Paul went into Thessalonica or Philippi and he declared the messianic reality of Jesus. Jesus is the new anointed Jewish figure who has come to rescue his people. The people responded and understood that as a political message. And that when Jesus declared the kingdom of God is at hand, people understood, hey, we got to watch out for this guy. Sounds like he's starting a revolution. And that when um, in Matthew, right at the beginning of Matthew, when King Herod hears another king has been born and the Magi come to him, he's upset. He's not like, I don't care. This is just a traveling teacher. He'll, it'll be fine. He actually goes out and he kills all the baby boys of Bethlehem because he's nervous about this new ruler who has come. So I think we, we sometimes miss those. What I'm getting at is we sometimes miss those narratives that supplement those kind of clear commands about how to engage with politics. We miss those narratives and we start to think, oh, only those texts are the ones that we need to go to for political theology. And really, all we need to do is submit. And therefore, it's a pretty easy, what does the Bible tell us about politics? Read Romans 13. That's all we need to say. And Romans 13 is hugely important. I just want to expand people's horizon and say, well, let's slow down our reading and actually recognize Romans 13 is, is one of the things we can say about how we engage with politics. But it's not the only thing. And actually, if it's the only thing we say, man, what do we do with totalitarian, completely corrupt rulers who are murdering people? Do we just submit to them? Or do we have other resources as Christians to say biblically, we need to do something here? 
this is wrong. Or are we supposed to submit to those rulers as well? Like, what, is, what does that look like? I just think Paul, Peter, Jesus, actually, in Mark 12, they're not giving us a full political theology. I, I said at the beginning of the book, I think I used this um, phrase, we have some assembly to do. What makes political theology in the Bible so difficult is we have a completely different political situation than we do today. And we're trying to draw principles from that completely different political situation to our current moment. And that is difficult to do. And so most of the time, and I, you know, I probably have the, everyone has the tendency to do this. We see what we want to. (laughs) We're like, hey, I see him doing that. So Jesus was totally against the government. Oh, now he's totally for the government. And usually when we make those type of statements, it's based on what the government's doing, whether we like it or not. And so Jesus kind of fits into our preformed political ideas. I wanted to use this book to say, ah, Jesus challenges a lot of our political ideas. And he kind of puts us, I call it a paradox, but he puts us off balance a little bit, understanding, man, sometimes you need to respond this way and sometimes this way. So. I've noticed something similar even in the field of ethics where we often, and this I think is a tendency for all Christians, kind of we kind of tend to kind of focus heavily on the teaching sections of scripture, the letters of Paul. And for good reason, we should do those things, but we often miss kind of whether you're talking about narratives. Um, but the other thing I've noticed in terms of even the wisdom literature is we often, I've asked students before and say, when's the last time you heard a sermon like on the book of Proverbs? But when you go and read Proverbs, it's not only immensely practical, but it's also holding up these deep truths of God and who he is, how he's made us, how he calls us to live in this world, and tying that theology, but also tying it to ethic about our actions and our response to those truths. And so I I love that to see, you know, there's a deep connection when we're talking about ethics, and there's so much bleed over here. And that's when it's hard sometimes. One of the reasons I love reading theologians kind of dipping into politics or ethicists doing the same thing is we all need one another. A lot of the formal distinctions in our disciplines, and we had uh, Tyler Whitman and uh, Bobby Jameson on not too long ago talking about some of the divides even in their fields uh, between interpretation and biblical studies as well as systematic theology. But one of the things I think we tend to isolate and segment a lot of these disciplines and act if they're wholly separate and wholly different while they're deeply intertwined, especially as we're thinking through scripture. Um, and so that's one of the things that I'll just commend you uh, throughout the book is that I think you help to kind of bridge some of these things together and help us to see how they um, how they function together. Yet they should be formally distinct in terms of how we study and kind of focus on these things. Yeah. And I'll let me just add something here. I said something like I read a bunch of political theory books. But honestly, those were hugely helpful for me too, because I hadn't spent a lot of time in them. And they gave me categories to bring to the biblical text to say, yeah, is this true? How do we reconcile this? And so one of the things I love doing was I really dipped my toes into that political theory kind of world and political theology world that honestly, I had no training in. And I found it fascinating. I feel like they were doing a ton of good work. And so I was trying to use some of their concepts, but just present it in a slightly different way. Well, I know throughout the book, you speak of this supposed tension between Jesus's kingdom as the already, but not yet. A lot of times we hear that in the church that, you know, Jesus's kingdom has already come, but it's also not yet. Or we hear about the already present, but still coming. And so when we, you write about it in the book about Jesus's political kingdom, that it's both subversive and submissive. 
And I think that might be kind of strike those two categories, might strike listeners or readers a little bit differently. Say, hey, you know, I haven't really thought about how it's subversive and submissive. So I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit and how that should inform our posture as Christians, especially living in a deeply pluralistic age, a deeply divided age in many ways. Yeah, certainly. So when I began to kind of re-examine the scriptures just with this lens on, you immediately see Jesus came announcing what he calls the gospel of the kingdom in Mark 1. These are his first words. And he says, repent and believe. And so as I began looking at those words, you just go into the even some word studies, some background to euangelion and basileia and pistis, which are the key words kind of he uses as his, this is kind of like his, his initial summary of his ministry. And all of these words are political words. I, I think if we translated Jesus saying, repent and have allegiance because the victory of my empire is here. <laughs> Suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, that was an interesting message. But honestly, all of the terms gospel can mean victory, kingdom can mean uh, empire, right? And then believe can mean allegiance or loyalty. Those are all fine translations of those words. But we typically kind of put those words, like I said, in kind of religious boxes and categories. And I said, well, well, what if we put the political frame on this? Suddenly you recognize Jesus came and he announced a new society. That's what he was inaugurating. He was saying, the victory of my kingdom is about to come. And that makes a lot of people nervous because they're like, hey, I didn't, Jesus, wait a second, Jesus didn't go after Caesar. He didn't say a lot about him. And so it doesn't make sense for him to, to make that sort of announcement. But Throughout his ministry, if you know kind of those Greco-Roman background themes, you see that some of his actions actually were a slight critique upon the rulers of that time. In Mark uh, chapter 10, he talks about Gentile rulers and how they rule and they lord over, they, they, they dominate people, they domineer over people. And he says, not so among you, rather the son of man came to serve you to be a servant, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So explicitly, in one of the most important texts in all of Mark, in terms of what Jesus came to do, he affirmed, my rule is going to be very different from the Gentile ways that they rule over you, and I need you to act in the same way. And so what's amazing there is he's critiquing the current rulers of the day. He's saying they're not doing this right. And so when Jesus comes he doesn't just come as the king over your life, but he, come, he comes as the king of kings. He announces his kingdom. And I think as you read through the New Testament, you can see, well, that's a very subversive message. So I use the term subversive because Jesus is recognizing something is wrong here on the earth. And part of the problem is politics. Because as humans engage in how do we order ourselves together, we, we are going to, our sin nature is going to come up in all of these things. And so he's like, yes, I'm here to fix your sin nature, but the implications of fixing your sin nature is you're going to have a new society. That's the goal. You're going to have a new kingdom. You're going to have a new place to live. And any ruler who sees a person coming, claiming I've got a new kingdom announcement is going to recognize, oh, they're saying something negative about my kingdom, <laughs> right? And so there's just a natural, I would argue, subversiveness or we need to do things differently is a layman's way of saying that. We need to do things differently to Jesus's message. And I would say that's true not only of Jesus's message, but that's true of Paul's message as well. As you go through Acts, you can see he announces Jesus is the Messiah, but they interpret it politically, like they're going against the decrees of Caesar. 
So then that sets us up for, oh, wow, Christianity is subversive to the current rulers. It's not just submit. But then we move forward in Jesus's life. And what does he command his followers? Well, he commands them to love their enemies, to put away their swords. He, he tells them, pay taxes to Caesar. Uh, actually, when he goes before Pilate and Pilate looks at him and he goes, are you a king? And Jesus says, yeah, I am, but not the type that you were expecting. And Pilate's like, I got nothing wrong with this guy. I think these Jews are jealous. The Jewish leaders are jealous. I've got, I, I don't, he says he's a type of king, but he's not the type of king that scares me. <laughs> and Jesus even says in John 18, uh, my kingdom isn't of this world. If I, if it was of this world, I would have raised an army, but guess what I did? I grabbed 12 disciples, more than that, but I grabbed 12 disciples. We walked around, we taught people some different things. Like my kingdom is not of this world in that way. And so we have this kind of, I'm trying to explain to you this paradox here where Jesus comes announcing a message that actually contradicts and challenges the rulers of the earth. But at the same time, in the midst of that, he submits to them and says, I'm actually here and I'm going to submit to what you say because God put you in place. And the paradox there is how do those two fit together? What's great about Jesus's life is you can just focus on the cross in one sense. And this is what I get to at the end of the book. I say, look, if this is confusing to you, look at the cross of Christ. Because in the cross of Christ, he submitted to Rome. Jesus said, I will submit to your ruling over my life. But by so doing, he subverted every earthly kingdom by installing his kingdom already, but not yet. (laughs) So in other words, his kingdom isn't fully here but it is to come in the future in a full way. But by dying on the cross, he said, Rome, you can do what you want with me. But then by doing that, he actually ended their kingdom. It just hasn't ended yet, if that makes sense, because they put a sign above his head that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They actually declared he was the king and the father declared after this that he was the king of the whole universe. So they just installed on the cross the new king of the universe. And so you can see it's complicated, but you can see in the cross, you can be see sub- submission and subversion actually meet. That they're not actually two different ways of being. It's both of those are actually obedience to God. <laughs> it, it, we are submitting to God by submitting to the government and subverting. It's the same posture towards our true ruler. And so... I, I just wanted to awaken people to that reality that we have both existing in the scriptures and we can get more practical as we go. But, you know, I had a lot of questions for like, when do we disobey the government? Like those were really live questions in 2020 to 2022, you know, like it was, it was a difficult time for people to understand how do we engage with the government in the midst of COVID when they're telling us, to do something that seems against the scriptures. Who do we obey in this situation? And so all those questions were live in my mind as I engaged with the scriptures and thought, yeah, what would the first Christians have done here? Like, how would they engage with the government? And so all those questions just became very relevant to me as I examined the scriptures. Yeah, one of the other questions too is you take this submissive and subversive paradigm and you start to kind of apply it to a lot of the kind of debates that we're having today is the debate over Christian nationalism. Uh, this is something that's not, uh, we don't shy away from. Many people mean very different things when they use that term, whether it's on the left or the right. Some adopt the term, some push away from the term, some see it having not a lot of uh, relevance or a lot of meaning for a faithful Christian witness. But that subversive kind of submissive paradigm, I think, is live not only in questions of civil disobedience, 
but even in questions of what is the right form of government? What is the right order to our society? What happens when our government or various kind of parts of our society seem to reject just basic biological design, uh, being male and female? What do we do? How do we navigate? Are we just completely submissive to the government or do we push back on these things? And what does that look like? So given that you kind of focus on kind of the concept of nationalism, I know you're doing some other writing on Christian nationalism as well. I wanted to see if you could help us to understand a little bit about how this paradigm directly kind of applies to a lot of these questions that we're facing today in terms of the debate over Christian nationalism, per se. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Christian nationalism is a hot topic right now, and it's complex. As a Baptist, I do affirm distinct spheres of authority. And so I think it's important. Uh, I critique Christian nas- nationalism in the book. I did write it um, before. I think there is some further conversations on Christian nationalism. But I critique it because I say, look, the, the government has a certain authority and the church has a certain authority. And to combine those two authorities seems to be a confusion of categories. So the church is given the keys of the kingdom and the government is given the power of the sword. I don't think the church is given the power of the sword, and I don't think the government is given the keys of the kingdom. And I think when we begin to intermingle those two things, we have problems. I mean, just very very practically, a nation is literally defined by borders. Christianity is not defined by borders. Actually, all of Acts is about transcending borders. (laughs) And so I, I just began by saying, I think this is a confusion of categories to say, America is a Christian nation. I, I'm not sure what that even means. It, it runs into problems. I think a lot of problems in terms of we don't convince people of our Christian faith by power, but by persuasion. And so it goes against what I would call the ethic of Christian witness. If you're trying to say we are trying to make everyone Christian by governmental policies, right? So I think there's, there's some problems with Christian nationalism, but, um, I also think, you know, people mean different things by Christian nationalism. How do we define it? And so I'm actually writing an article right now that might come up somewhere if anyone likes it. I'm still kind of seeing who wants it. But um, I'm calling it the good, the bad, and the ugly of Christian nationalism (laughs) using the old movie title. And I do affirm, sometimes people talk about Christian nationalism as Christianity has and should continue to influence the nation. And I actually think that's right. Because we live in a pluralistic society, and we believe that our beliefs should affect public life, and yeah, so they, they have to. They have to. I mean, you can't that's separate the, reality. the they, two. Yeah, you, yeah. It's, it's exactly what we talked about earlier. You can't privatize our faith. It has yep. a public element. It's it's by nature public. So if people are saying you're a Christian nationalist because um, you're against abortion and you're voting for senators and representatives and governors that are against abortion, that's Christian nationalism. I'm going to say, well, if that's your definition, I guess I am a Christian nationalist because I really believe in the flourishing of humanity and I'm going to vote according to my principles as a Christian. But that's distinct from arguing we must fuse Christianity with American life in a holistic sense. And I, I think it's a, it's a really slippery, I guess, slippery slope to go from one to say it ha- should have some influence in the nation to s- then say it should be fused with the nation. Because we've talked about this, that doesn't respect the temporal distinction between this age and the age to come. That fusion, I, I think as a Christian, will not happen until the final age. And we don't live in that final age. So again, the way we advocate for our Christian principles is by persuasion. We try to persuade people of it. 
And then I, I, what I say in the article is it gets ugly. So the bad is the fusion of Christianity with American life. Where it gets ugly is when you do that by dominion, not just by voting, not just by saying it should like our voice should be the primary voice that's heard. Does that make sense? That would be the bad. Only only Christians or mainly Christians should have a voice in terms of what happens. No, that's that doesn't actually fit the American experiment, nor does it fit, I think, the Christian witness. Where it gets really ugly is when you begin saying, okay, if you won't listen to my voice, then I'm just going to dominate the political process. And I think I think that's what happened for example, on January 4th, that that's the fusion of Christianity with American life by dominion. That's what makes me really nervous. The first two categories, it's like, no, I don't like the fusion, but I do think our principles should affect how we vote, how we engage with society. And so we kind of have to begin with definitions as all things. What do we mean by Christian nationalism? My concern at a more popular level, I know I just keep going and going, but my concern at a more popular level is that the combination of Christianity with America causes most Christians to become confused about the difference between Christ's kingdom and the kingdom of man, and that we need to have a clear distinction between those two. And so if we begin to fuse those two realities, we begin to think that if we don't elect this person or this person doesn't win, then Christ's kingdom is losing or something to that effect. And if we do elect that person, we're winning. No, the election of a human governor or human president or whatever it is, is not a, a win or a loss for Christ's kingdom. I just don't think those are the categories we need to put it in. Um, we can believe one will be better for society and one will be worse for society. But we need to be really careful about taking those two concepts and completely overlapping them, which might sound contradictory for my book when I say Christianity is political. But I think that's making Christianity partisan and combining the agenda of man with the agenda of God. Yeah, and I think one of the aspects of that conversation, and uh, you brought it up already as a Baptist specifically, and kind of our, our fundamental belief in religious freedom and the freedom of conscience, has a lot to say on this. And so Baptists, I think, have a unique perspective on the role of the church and the state of these different spheres and how they interact, maybe then some of our brothers and sisters that are uh, from other denominations or other faith groups may have a different understanding. But I think as Baptists, we have to stand firm on that, of the freedom of conscience, the freedom of will, um, on this concept of a fully orbed kind of uh, idea of religious freedom. That's not a privatized faith by any means. It is a public faith. Our faith is by nature public. But there is that freedom of conscience that really needs to stay in part of this debate. And so for listeners' sake, if they want to dig a little bit deeper on that specific question, uh, we were really thankful to have uh, Paul Miller, Dr. Paul Miller from Georgetown, about his new book on that very topic, as well as uh, we had David Van Drudin on the podcast not too long ago talking about politics after Christendom, a really, really helpful book. Again, a a little bit more of a kind of a primer and paradigm set. Uh, than maybe something that's immensely practical on particular issues, uh, but it really helps to frame a lot of this debate up. Uh, Well, Patrick, I have one question before we get to our last question that I wanted to see if you could address. Um, And you mentioned it kind of closer to the end of the book uh, where you talk about, you were discussing kind of the four ways of approaching politics and you build upon Jonathan Lehman in his really helpful book, How the Nations Rage. He has a framing where he's using two kind of biblical characters 
And you build upon that to talk about kind of four ways from the Old and New Testament, four characters that kind of model our posture towards earthly rulers and empires. And I wanted to see if you could just briefly kind of introduce that, kind of tease it out for us, uh, because I think that's a really helpful way to be thinking about our posture and the way we approach the public nature of our faith. Yeah, you're right. As I read Jonathan Lehman's books, he does a great work on political theology, and he he used a few biblical figures, and I I thought that was a helpful way of framing it. And so he even used, I think, a few of these figures himself, but then I kind of reframed it for my project. But most of my book is on the New Testament, but I use a, a few Old Testament figures here. And I just try to think of, okay, if these figures represent how to engage with politics, what can we learn from them? So I use Judas and I think Judas is the way of compromise. He thought Jesus, I think he thought Jesus was going to come and do something different than he was going to do. That is go to the cross. And so Judas said, I want in on political power. <laughs> and so he was willing to sell Jesus out to the ruling elites at that point. I think because he suddenly realized Jesus is not going to bring the kingdom that I want, the kingdom that I was expecting. And so Judas ended up compromising and saying, I'm going to sell out my king for 30 shekels of silver, right? Like for, for nothing really. And because he, he thought I is just not going the way I want to. And so he compromised on his faith. He didn't follow the king all the way to the cross. You also have the example of Jonah. God told Jonah, go and witness to this nation. And he thought they're way too far gone. <laughs> I, and I think some people are starting to feel that right now in our nation. They're way too far gone. I've, I just need to go and kind of do my own thing. So Jonah actually ran away and he, what, what I call, he detached. He said, I no longer have anything to say to this nation. I, I, I can't go to Nineveh. I, I can't speak to them because they're too far gone. And God rebukes him for that. He said, no, I will have compassion upon those who I have, have compassion. And so he goes and he actually, he actually teaches Jonah, look, I, I have a plan for these people. So, so we don't need to detach politically. We don't need to compromise. Then you have the way of Jeroboam. Jeroboam decided, I'm not going to follow the Davidic king. I'm going to go build my own kingdom. I'm going to build my own utopia because really these Davidic kings, they're not doing it right. So I'm going to build my own thing. And that's where we begin to think, okay, you know, what's happening here on the earth? That's fine, but I'm going to build something better. So I'm going to completely detach in another way, but I'm going to build maybe my own Christian kingdom. I'm going to, I'm not going to engage with the world at all. I'm going to uh, send my kids to the school where they don't have to engage in any sense. And we're just going to build our own utopia here on the earth. And I think all of those are kind of failed visions of how we are to interact politically. But then I went to Jeremiah and you said, give a quick one. I know I'm going long, but uh, Jeremiah, I think is a great example of being both a witness and having wisdom in terms of how to engage with the culture. Interestingly, Jeremiah's main message, political message was to God's people. And he warned the people of their disloyalty against Yahweh. So one of the things when you read this book, I was afraid a lot of people would say, oh, we've got to go be more politically active. We've got to go do these, these things. But my big push was actually your main political action is going to be in the church, in that new society that Christ is creating now with the community of believers around you. And so when, when Jeremiah went out, he actually warned his people against disloyalty to their true king, Yahweh himself. But that doesn't mean that Jeremiah was just completely unconcerned about what was happening around him. He also looked at the nations and rebuked them for not following Yahweh. So he both had a message for the insiders 
and for the outsiders. And then what was interesting for Jeremiah is he told God's people, seek the good of Babylon, seek the good of the city. This is a very famous text, Jeremiah 29, 7. And so he wasn't just detaching. He said, actually, you can seek their good. But then at the same time, he said, don't hope in Babylon being transformed because God must bring in his kingdom. And so that's a lot. But what's interesting is Jeremiah is able to combine both a political witness inside the church, a political witness outside the church, a caring for all of humanity, and a recognizing that only God will truly bring in utopia. (laughs) And somehow Jeremiah, I think, was able to actually bring all those things together. And I think that's what we're called to as well. This is a difficult conversation because I think when we hear some of those things, we tend towards one or the other. What Jeremiah does is he, he actually says all of those can exist at once. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful note to end on. And obviously, there's so much more that we could talk about that we have already talked about. Um, And one of the things we always do at the end of the podcast is highlight a few extra resources. So obviously, we want folks to go pick up a copy of your book, Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. Um, But what are some other resources, especially as one who's kind of drunk deep from the wells, not only uh, biblical studies and New Testament studies, specifically theology, political theology theory, what are some books that you might recommend new and old, to help folks kind of chew on some of these issues as we think about the kind of the political nature of our faith? Yeah. Uh, Augustine's The City of God is kind of the, the standard political text that everyone goes to. It's so long, but you can actually look up online the key chapters to read where you get the basic concepts from Augustine. And so I would say that's like the most important text on political theology for a Christian to read. And so, and I think you can even find it online for free. And so you could read some of those chapters just at home. That would be one of the first texts I'd go to. I I found so much help from Augustine's work. And then I would look at Jonathan Lehman's work. We've mentioned his work. Uh, He has a book, How the Nations Rage. He has a book called Political Assembly. Those are really helpful books, I think, from a more Baptistic perspective that, that gives more instruction for how to engage politically. But more on a more scholarly side, but if you're interested in how the biblical text deals with this more, I would look at Kevin Rowe's book, World Upside Down. I think that's a really helpful book for how Paul interacted with the politics of his day. It's a little dense, but if you get his argument, I think it's genius and uh, it's really helpful. So those are a few of the resources I'd point to. No, that's great. And we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes so listeners can grab those. We'll also link to your new book so people can grab a copy of that. But uh, Patrick, I really appreciate your work. I appreciate your ministry. And I appreciate you coming on uh, today to talk to us a little bit about it um, here on the Digital Public Square. Thanks for having me, Jason. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with other people. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Schreiner and learn more about his new book, Political Gospel, as well as the recommended resources that we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date in the latest tech news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.